This is a Federal News Network podcast. It is one of the big questions of the day. Who should be exempted by their employers from a vaccine mandate? In the case of active duty military members, it's not so clear. But lots of queries have been lighting up the phones of our next guest. He is the managing partner of the law firm Tully Rinke, Sean Timmons. He spoke with Tom Timmons. We're getting questions from every branch of service. We're getting them across the board, across the spectrum, from the lowest ranking individuals who just signed up to join the military, all the way up to senior officers, senior commanders, the Army, the Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps, Coast Guard, federal employees. We're getting it across the board. I will say the hesitation seems to be more significantly pronounced in the Army and Marine Corps, but I've got clients in each branch of service. And we also have 17 attorneys who work in our military practice group. We are the largest military practice group in the country, to my knowledge. And each of us have been working overtime, significant hours, weekends, nights. Our calls have been nonstop since August. What are they asking for for medical exemptions or religious exemptions? What is it they're asking for? It fits into about four different buckets. The first bucket I would say it fits into is people with sincere religious objections because they want an accommodation based on their religious practice, their moral belief that the vaccine is corrupted by the research or the fetal cells that were used in, in the process of development. A lot of people who claim to be um, pro-life see the abortion research and say that that prohibits their moral conscience from allowing them to have the vaccine. That's one reoccurring theme. And I would say that's the main theme, the religious objection. However, we see a large number of people who say, I've got a medical problem and I'm afraid the vaccine is not vetted properly. Therefore, I have a medical concern. I'm afraid my previous condition is going to be aggravated by taking this vaccine. So I do not want to be vaccinated. That's bucket number two. Bucket number three is people who are saying, look, I'm about to get out. My enlistment's over in two weeks. Do I really have to comply? Or I'm retiring in three months. Do I really need to comply? So I'd like an administrative removal. And then bucket number four is a large number of people saying, hey, I already had COVID. I already recovered. Why should I have a vaccine? I'd rather have natural immunity. Well, unfortunately, natural immunity is not really considered by the military an acceptable accommodation. So they're not allowing it. But those are the four main themes. And honestly, you know, bluntly, number five, I see a lot of conspiracy theories, not as common with the federal employees and the military members. But we do see some reoccurring conspiracy theories throughout each of those elements. We try to walk people back from the conspiracy theories. You can't use the conspiracy theory information as a basis to get an accommodation. So our focus is mainly the legal authorities. Sure. They probably cite that as evidence of the conspiracy itself. Yes, that's of course. They cite that. They also cite evidence of the conspiracy that the military has prohibited uniformed attorneys in the military from helping soldiers seek an accommodation. So it's like, wait, the system's not even allowing me to use the attorneys in the military. They usually usually provide to soldiers to help you out. They're not. So as a civilian provider, we're absolutely able to help anybody out. But if you go to legal assistance at Fort Hood or if you go to trial defense services at Fort Bragg or any of the other installations, they're going to say, sorry, we're prohibited from helping you out. Go hire a civilian. The religious exemption request, the one that is the most common, are you able to get those exemptions? What is the record so far across the armed services, I guess in the civilian agencies too, for that matter? What are they doing about that? So far, the only branch that I've seen a significant number of religious accommodations approved is the U.S. Army. The Navy, the Marine Corps, they fall into the same department of the Navy, and the Air Force, they're sitting on them. They have not made a decision one way or the other. I have not seen an approved religious accommodation from the Air Force at this time. I also have not seen not denials either. So I really don't know what they're waiting on as far as decision-making process. But Secretary of the Army has been pretty blunt and accommodating, I would say. I believe the Army feels it's necessary because they're going to lose 20, 30 percent of their force if they don't grant a significant number of accommodations. So the Army is approving them. I've seen some at Fort Hood. I've seen some at other installations. I've also seen a couple of medical waivers across the Army saying, look, this person's in the medical evaluation process. 
they're going to mentally retire. They already have cancer. They're, they're immune compromised. They don't want to add something else into their debilitating cancer already. So we're just going to not make them get the vaccine. So I will commend the Army. They have been processing these. The other branches, they're, they're sitting on them. We're speaking with Sean Timmons. He's managing partner of the law firm Tully Rinky. And getting back to the exemption grounds, say religious, often in the case of a dispute between employer and employee or military and the leadership, you can cite case law, you can cite law itself, you can have chapter and verse that you can reference in defending a person or holding up their rights. Is there any case law or chapter and verse in the case of a vaccination exemption? There is a statute that we're citing to specifically, the 1993 Religious Freedom Restoration Act provides a significant legal protection for those individuals who say they need a religious accommodation in their workplace. That law was in reaction to other Supreme Court cases that said, oh, well, the government has compelling interests, therefore they can infringe on your religious liberty. The government can still infringe on your religious liberty if, say, your religious practice is something like cannibalism, which causes human sacrifice. They can obviously say, no, we're not going to permit murder, because even if it's a religion. However, if it's a routine religious practice, they generally have to provide an accommodation unless it meets a strict scrutiny standard. Government's going to argue, well, vaccination meets strict scrutiny. Our response is, no, it it doesn't, not at this time, because the vaccine is still being vetted and people have a religious right to decide how they conduct themselves when it comes to their own body. In other words, that law would protect, say, Muslims who have to stop and pray several times a day. Religious Jews also have certain periods of the day when they have to stop and pray. And so that type of accommodation is happening under that statute. Yeah, same accommodation that happens for people who want to take holidays for like a Hindu temple. That's not a normally recognized holiday amongst federal employees. But if that's your religious practice and you've been following it and it's sincere, the government's required to give you an accommodation. And maybe you can work a different day, but you're allowed to take your holidays. But, you know, we have people who have moral objections across the spectrum, whether they're Nordic pagans to Buddhists, uh, Muslims, uh, fundamentalist Christians, or just regular mainline Orthodox Christian or Catholic. Even though the Pope has said vaccination is fine, we have a lot of priests who are writing letters saying, well, my parishioner is opposed to this, therefore grant them an accommodation. Yeah, well, the Pope says a lot of things nobody pays attention to, I guess, in that case. But getting back to the uh, sitting on it idea that some of the leadership is exhibiting when you have contacted them, what does that mean for the individual? That means they're neither reprimanded nor having to get the vaccine? At this time, yes, they are setting up what's called a consolidated adjudication process for separation authority, meaning they're going to funnel everybody who refuses to get the vaccine without an accommodation or an exemption into a discharge process. The Navy and Marine Corps just issued guidance that everybody who does not get an accommodation or waiver will be discharged with no worse than a general discharge. And they'll be discharged pretty quickly, probably early next year. So it's imperative that individuals who have an objection who have not complied with the directive to get the vaccine to file their written request for a waiver or accommodation. Otherwise, they will be discharged, and each branch is setting up uh, consolidations of boards that make this very efficient. Now, the Army has granted reserves and guard all the way until June of next year. I believe the reason for that is they hope the pandemic's over by then so they can then withdraw the mandate. But the other branches are pretty sincere about removing individuals who don't comply with the vaccine mandate. And I wanted to ask also about the idea of someone being within days or a couple of weeks of their enlistment being over or the retirement occurring. Can they get away with that? Can the supervising officers or civilians, if the case might be, just look away and just let it slip? I'm seeing that happen. I'm seeing people just file their terminal leave and go on leave, clear the installation and ride off into the sunset. We have had success with that. I don't know if that's going to continue indefinitely, but at the current moment, they're not putting a lot of resistance on those who have completed their career. 
it would be very difficult to divest somebody of their retirement eligibility at 19 years and 10 months. I mean, unless they commit a serious felony, they're probably going to get to retirement. That's just, just the reality of it. So generally, if you're near retirement, you can ride the clock out. If you're near your ETS date, they really don't want to hold somebody beyond their ETS date just to prosecute them for not complying with the vaccine mandate. Now, if they engage in other misconduct, they very well could, but uh, sure. it's just the vaccine. They're not spending a lot of resources on it. Don't forget, the military justice shops are required to um, handle these issues, and they're also dealing with the standard day-to-day stuff of DUIs, sexual assaults, everything else that the military deals with. So it's really causing a significant manpower issue with the legal offices across the installations. So the main concern then for someone enlisted running out the clock is they still want to get an honorable discharge. Yes, they want to make sure their, their discharge is vested or d 214 is honorable. If they don't have an approved accommodation or waiver, though, and they're not out, say, before the end of the year, they probably need to seek it immediately. Otherwise, they face getting a general discharge, which would cause them to lose significant benefits, such as the GI Bill, the post-9-11 GI Bill, uh, mortgage interest rate reduction from the VA, uh, home loan benefit guarantees. I mean, you will still get some benefit from the general discharge, but you lose a significant number of them. The gold standard is honorable discharge. Sure. And finally... You have seen instances of people at a lower level taking responsibility for this decision when it really should be higher ranking. Tell us about some of those cases and what should be the protocol for who decides in a given regiment or unit. Yes. Unfortunately, we're seeing a lot of company commander level, you know, 03, 04, 05 level commands, putting their their subordinates under duress, basically putting them on a bus and making them go to the gym and basically ordering them to take the vaccine, even if they filed an accommodation or, or a written request. Then we're getting called literally while they're in line saying, I'm being ordered to take the vaccine right now. Do I have to do it? Like, no, you just tell them you have an attorney and you've filed a request for an accommodation and hasn't been ruled upon. So get out of line. Don't make them stick a needle in your arm. So we're seeing those kinds of activities from lower levels. And I think it's because they're under duress, meaning that the generals, the admirals are telling their subordinates, hey, any unit that has 100 percent compliance, we're going to give them a stellar evaluation and promotion. So get to 100 compliance with your unit. And individuals who have low level of compliance are being basically ostracized and harassed by their senior leadership. Wow. And finally, what about on the civilian side of government? You said you're getting calls from civil agency employees. And what is the general tone and disposition of cases there? Well, for private employers, they're making accommodations. Like, for example, I got a notice from a client of mine working at a major financial institution in New York and with offices across the country. And they actually, even though they're a federal contractor, they're pushing back, kind of like Southwest Airlines. I don't want to give away the name of the employer because of the confidential nature of the representation. But we are seeing employers push back against the mandate from the federal government to say, we're not going to make it a condition of employment. We don't believe we should force our employees to make a medical decision. However, the federal government, under the president's executive authority, they are really pushing it hard. And unfortunately, a lot of those individuals may well lose their job unless they get an approved religious accommodation or a medical waiver. And it's a little bit easier for the government to terminate employment than it is to, say, prosecute somebody in the military for failure to follow lawful order. In the military system, you're talking about a criminal sanction for failure to follow legal orders. In the federal government, if you don't do what your supervisor tells you to do, all they can do is fire you. So losing your job is not necessarily the same repercussions. So federal employees are kind of in a difficult position, significantly so. Their legal protections are less than those in the military. They still should seek a religious accommodation. They should still seek a medical waiver if they feel that they should not be compelled to be vaccinated. However, ultimately, the worst that can happen to them is they'll lose their job. Sean Timmons is managing partner of the law firm Tully Rinke. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. 
Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. And during his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual, actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Uh, and then after I retired after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin and what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I. We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was 
it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Um, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From Sea to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes, when I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they gonna say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in, in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect, thank you. Yeah, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the US Navy standpoint, 
we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.